Hello there. Don't have a good day. Have a great day. Talk to me, Goose. I'm gonna steal the Declaration of Independence. Why so simple? I could do this all day. Are you watching closely? Welcome, everybody, to the One-Eyed Film Podcast. I'm your host, Seth Mossberg, and today we're talking about Harry Potter with my brother, Luke. Luke, I'm very excited to have you here. I know you're a huge fan of the movies and the books, and I'm excited to hear what you have to say about them. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. This is going to be fun. It definitely is. Harry Potter, as most people are well aware, is a very controversial franchise to talk about amongst the Christian community because for, for our generation, and maybe a little bit older than my generation because... I wasn't quite the reading age when the books were coming out, but some Christian parents, many Christian parents had a very difficult time accepting this franchise, this book series, and eventually movie series as acceptable for their kids. And understandably, (laughs) we're going to talk about this more in depth, but understandably, having a brand new writer that they didn't know anything about, J.K. Rowling was a, a young author at that point, and she was not well known. And so hearing the popularity of this book series about witchcraft and wizardry being so popular among kids, many parents found that disturbing. And like I said, understandably so. I I would probably have a difficult time letting my kids read something like that if that's all that I knew about it. And what's disappointing is that so many parents were quick to jump to conclusions without actually understanding what the content of the book was all about. As opposed to any of the other stories that we knew that involved magic, whether it was Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, or any of the Disney movies that were acceptable back then, it was just automatically evil to read or watch Harry Potter because of the title, Witchcraft and Wizardry. And that I can understand. The medium that Rowling decided to present her children's story, that's what she wrote it for kids. This wasn't an adult-oriented story. This was meant as a children's book, and it wasn't meant to be a positive view on witchcraft. Obviously, the Bible condemns witchcraft in the direct sense of speaking to the dead and talking to spirits and using evil magic, or as Deacon brought up in his horror movie episode, black magic. That is magic that only corrupts. It is not a life-giving magic. And again, it's just the nomenclature that we have given that type of power. So you can create something along the lines of the force, where it is telekinesis or the power to move things with your mind. But putting the name magic to it now becomes evil because there is a sense of magic that is dangerous to the spiritual life of a Christian. And this is the same type of magic that, let's say, Superman is is weakened by he's not weakened by sleight of hand or the magic show that you see on stage like that that's silly that's that we we attribute sleight of hand and just say magic when we don't actually mean magic and in the same way these powers that are taught to children in the story of harry potter is not even the actual magic that we are warned against in scripture this is a medium that rowling decided to go to give the children that read these books the sense of power over an evil world and we'll talk about that more in a little bit of detail but i want to hear your thoughts luke on the choosing this 
topic to go to as an acceptable children's story and why so many people had a problem with that. Well, and see, the issue that a lot of parents have is just the term magic, and that is a turnoff, and witches, and wizards, and all this stuff is the turnoff to parents that they don't want their kids going into the dark magic side of it and whatever. But amongst Christian parents, they are quick to judge Harry Potter because it is blatantly, oh, we're teaching children magic. But they also turn around and say, hey, go watch Lord of the Rings or The Hobbit or Narnia, all which have the same sort of magic. It's just not as, it's not as pronounced in those. I would say the reason so many parents were accepting of Chronicles of Narnia, Lord of the Rings, all those is because they were written by people who were accepted. Like I said, Rowling was a young author and virtually unknown, and yet when C.S. Lewis came out with Chronicles of Narnia, he was widely accepted because that is an amazing story and parallels almost directly the story of the gospel with Aslan sacrificing himself and Lord of the Rings. And we'll talk about that sometime. We'll also talk about Lord of the Rings sometime and how that parallels scripture as well and how J.R.R. Tolkien wrote it as a parallel. Again, a different way to tell the same story of sacrificial love for a bunch of people. Well, people don't realize J.K. Rowling is devoutly Catholic. So people are so quick to judge that she is Catholic and she actually came out and said that a lot of the things she wrote, which I will get to, is a lot of the story of Harry Potter is parallel to the story of Jesus. And it's not like one of those things that we pull from different movies and we're like, oh, look at that. That's parallel to Jesus. J.K. Rowling wrote the story of Harry Potter, especially the last two books, as a direct parallel to the story of Jesus. And it's one of those things that Christian parents see, oh, well, it's magic, so it's bad. Mm -hmm. Because they don't know the content of the books. And that's where I think a lot of the conflict arises is because there's a stigma of it that it's magic and witchcraft and God says don't practice witchcraft directly. The Bible says that. And I agree with that because it's in the Bible. But it's only bad if you think it's real because God would not give the power to people like that in Harry Potter. He would not give us the power to wave a piece of wood at someone, say some special words, and boom, they're dead. He wouldn't give us that power. Because we are limited by the bounds of time and space, we can't go back in time and change things. We can't create things. And I think that's where some parents go awry is they think that their kids will get into this stuff when it's not real, which I'm not denying that there's the occult and all of that. But if you trust your kids and you're willing to talk with them about it, then it's going to be nothing more than a fantasy series like Lord of the Rings or Narnia or any Disney movie. It's all your perspective on what's real and what's not. I completely agree. We understand that it is a fantastical book written to be unbelievable. Rowling was not out to write a book to try and sneak in a bunch of actual spells to teach children. Leviosa and Avada Kedavra do not actually work. That's the entire point, is that it's a j not a joke, but it's it's giving power to children the same way that a lightsaber might or the force does. And if you're going to criticize the use of magic in Harry Potter, then go along and criticize the force in Star Wars. I would say that the if along those standards, the force of Star Wars is 
a lot worse than the magic of Harry Potter because it is more of a, I believe it was Hindu type of impersonal god and, and moving objects with your mind and all of that, uh, having midichlorians flowing through you and everything in the universe so that you have a connection with the earth. Like that is actually a very unhealthy view of the world. So if you're going to, if you're going to look at Harry Potter as being so dangerous, then also you got to let go of Star Wars too, because that is not biblical either. And yet there are parallels that we can draw from Harry Potter, even more so than Star Wars. Star Wars is kind of its own thing even, and we'll get to talk about Star Wars at some point this summer. But this is also worth noting if you are a parent listening and you don't think that Harry Potter would be beneficial to your kids and that there might be actually some spiritual problems with your child watching these movies or reading these books, then we're not telling you that they need to. It's totally up to you, the parent, to make those calls for your kids. We are not instructing you that you need to. If there is an actual danger, then don't, by no means, don't let them do that. But we're also going to argue that the Harry Potter movies are not all that the Christian culture has made them out to be. And on that note, there is a wonderful book out there by a man named Frank Turek, an apologist who I respect greatly. He wrote a book called Hollywood Heroes. And if you've listened to episode zero, you'll know that his book really pushed me to make this podcast to talk further about these movies. And he has a great chapter about Harry Potter in there talking about all these parallels, like we said, we will get to, but also just a bunch of points that I will be referencing. He did a bunch of podcasts on that. So if you look up Hollywood Heroes, Frank Turk, you'll get a bunch of results for that. If you want to listen to those, also just get the book. It is a wonderful resource for you to read and understand further what, how we can approach movies as well as listening to this podcast. Thank you for following and listening, by the way. Well, just to kind of finalize and recap all this, it all comes down to the parent's decision and how you perceive your child's maturity to read this stuff. Because if you don't think that they're ready, and if you don't want them to, or any other reason, if you're not comfortable with that, then stick to your guns. But also, I would encourage everyone to think about it and say, are you saying no just because of the stigma of it? Or are you saying no because you actually have concerns and you don't feel comfortable? And it all comes down to your conscience and if it doesn't feel right then don't but also just come at it with an open mind and don't say no for the sake of saying no that's the entire purpose of this podcast so much of our christian culture looks at a movie and immediately judges it for its cover and i like i i desire to break that ideology of judging a movie by its poster or a book by its cover unless you know that there is something that would not be healthy for you then you don't need to see it But do your research and see, maybe there's some good in this movie that I would prosper from. And like you mentioned earlier, Rowling is a devout Catholic who wanted to present the gospel in a way that children would be open to it. In a way, she didn't write it, like I said, with a purpose of presenting magic to kids as a real thing. Yeah, that became what it was known for because it was so widely opposed by the Christian community. But magic isn't the point of the story. As much as it's a school about magic where they are learning about magic and how to use it for the fight against darkness, the center of the story is human nature and how it is still flawed even with the the magic. Like people will still use that type of power for evil. No matter no matter if it's the force or superpowers or anything, there is always a dark side to fantastical powers like that that are always taken to the extreme evil and that's usually where the big bad comes from is using that power that the the protagonist has but using it in a negative way for his own personal gain. 
And with these books having come out over the course of 12 years and the movies coming out after 10 years, like Rowling knew kind of what the end goal was. Obviously, she she had a point to get to in her story. It took her six books, or in our case, seven movies, to reveal the entire point at the end because big spoiler alert harry dies at the end so the parallel between harry and jesus is that during the battle of hogwarts harry didn't know that he was the last horcrux until they went and found voldemort and snape and snape gave harry the memory telling him that he was the last horcrux because when voldemort had killed harry's mom his soul was so broken and destroyed into all these different horcruxes that the last part in him latched onto Harry. So Harry didn't know that, so he thought that they would be able to fight and eventually kill Voldemort. But he realized that he was the last horcrux and needed to go to Voldemort and have Voldemort kill him in order to save all of his friends because he knew that if he died he would give his friends the chance to finally kill Voldemort so that's where the sacrifice comes in and technically he does die and then he comes back to life which is also another parallel between Jesus and him is dying and coming back to life in sacrifice for all of his friends and coming back to defeat evil once and for all yeah which funny you say that because one other thing that most people don't realize, especially in the Deathly Hallows, which you don't get a very good look at, is the three Bible verses that are almost directly stated, mm. which most of them are clearly stated in the books, which they are slightly shown in the movies, but you don't really see it. I think it's in the Deathly Hallows part one. When they're visiting Harry's parents' grave, the inscription on their tombstone says, the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death, which ultimately encapsulates the entire story of the Bible, because the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. And eventually that's what the end of the world will come to, is Satan will be destroyed and death will be forever ended, which I think is, and J.K. Rowling, that's what she wrote, and that's what she meant with that. And the other thing is on Dumbledore's mother and sister's gravestones, it says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, mm. which is very profound. And it's a little saddening that they didn't put that in the movies. But mm -hmm. that's another thing is people don't realize this sort of stuff is in Harry Potter and the deep theological <laughs> statements that that makes in it. And how much more powerful the story is with those inserted in there. Without them, yes, it would just kind of be its own standalone thing and we wouldn't even be talking about this. And maybe it would have some merit to why we shouldn't boycott it. But Rowling basing Harry, at least in part, off of Jesus and forming this world of good versus evil and death being the final victim is just multiplied when you realize that she based it off of the Bible and the greatest story ever told of Jesus' sacrifice for us on the cross. It's almost crazy that this is the most powerful current version of this story, this retelling almost, in like we said, a fantastical way in a sort of children's book format and maybe a little bit older teenage uh, movies to be enjoyed. But when people realize that Harry Potter is not all that it's made out to be by the Christian culture, that it's actually okay for most people to enjoy it 
then it just changes the whole picture. It changes like your perspective on, did I judge this wrongly the first time? Do I need to reevaluate what I think about this? I would encourage you, listener, to, to think about these things, not just with Harry Potter, but with anything in life, that unless it is a morally wrong thing stated in the Bible, that you look at it with a fresh pair of eyes and an open mind to consider why you put that aside and decide not to consume it, which you have your own personal opinions. That is fine. But the freedom we have in Christ is not a legalist, do not do this, do not read Harry Potter, do not watch any R-rated movies. That is a bad ideology that the last generation has indicted upon us. And if you consider that we have this freedom where we are allowed to do anything, though not everything is good. 1 Corinthians 10, 23, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. You are allowed to do anything with the freedom in Christ. And that may range from consuming alcohol to abstaining completely because you understand that that isn't going to be beneficial for you. If you don't think Harry Potter is necessary for your life, then don't watch it. But also, there are some people who really enjoy it because of its biblical themes and all that. There's such a spectrum of approaches to controversial topics like this, and there is no right or wrong. There is no verse in the Bible that says don't watch or read Harry Potter. It's up to you and your conscience to decide what is good for you and what is not going to be beneficial for your spiritual life. So come at it with an open mind and talk with others about it. Our Discord is a great place to do that. I'm going to plug that again where where we'll be talking about this and what we think about Harry Potter specifically, among other things. So now with our rant out of the way, we want to actually talk about these movies, the things we liked, the things we didn't like. I have not read the book, so I'm going to ask you, Luke, what are some big differences, just maybe one or two big differences between the books and the movies that they avoided or changed or something like that? What the directors did with the movies is they took it mostly out of the books. There are a few parts of each book that were taken out, which was a little frustrating, but for the sake of time and plot, weren't really needed. One of those main things was the character of Dobby. He's in every single book and in a lot of it, but in the movies, he's only shown twice which is a little sad because it takes away from the sacrifice he makes in the last movie, sacrificing his life for everybody. And it just takes away from a little bit of that because you don't get to know him as well as you did in the books. May I interject? Even though he only appeared in two of the movies, I felt the most connection to him out of all (laughs) the characters. And that's not to say they didn't develop the other characters well. His death almost made me cry. Maybe that's just because he's like this almost Olaf character where you can't help but love him. That's that's his purpose is to to love him and his happy-go-lucky, you know, I'm here to serve you. Regardless of how little he showed up, we still connected with him on that level. And I can't imagine what it would ha- have happened if they included him in the rest of the movies. Yeah, and the first time I did watch The Deathly Hallows, I did cry a little bit when he died <laughs> because I had read the books and it's he's just such this lovable character that it was kind of sad that he didn't use him as much in the movies as he was in the books because he does show up, I think, in almost every book which is kind of sad because they replaced him kind of with other characters. And there was also another character of Winky, which was another house elf that didn't show up in the movies. And fun fact, in the Battle of Hogwarts, in the books, all of the Hogwarts house elves come out and fight with all of their kitchen tools and stab all the bad guys in the feet and slowly kill a bunch of them, which is kind of morbid, but it's still really funny because they're there to serve. And I just think they're just great characters. Other than that, most everything is book accurate. There's nothing that's a major difference. 
Did they give Ginny more of a character arc in the in the books? Don't get me started. But <laughs> so the one thing they didn't have in the movies was any sort of personality for Ginny. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm being completely serious. I I don't want to hate on Bonnie Wright for her portrayal of Ginny. It's just the writing. Her character was flat. She had no personality. But in the books. Her and Harry's relationship develops so much. They are, like, perfect for each other. And that's one other thing. When Harry has to go off to find the Horcruxes, he actually breaks up with Ginny. Because he knows that if Voldemort finds out that they're in a relationship and that she means so much to him, that he will go after her and the Weasleys, which that's another part of his sacrifice, is he gives up this relationship. And eventually, they do get back together. But... It shows another part of his character that isn't in the movies. He gives her up and is willing to sacrifice his happiness and her safety in order to save the world. I thought you said don't get you started on Ginny, and you got started. Well, you did. (laughs) (laughs) Let's move on before you get any more more mad. I want to mention really quickly the Dursleys. I mentioned to you when we were watching them that I can't stand them, but that's the entire point of their existence. Every time the movie opened with them being cruel to Harry, it just made my blood boil, but that's why they are there, is so you can immediately sympathize with Harry before you know anything about him, just because of how his uncle and aunt and cousin treat him. It's a not-so-subtle way to get you connected to the protagonist really quickly. If you think about it, I saw this video ranking all the Harry Potter couples. They are one of the best couples in the Harry Potter series because, if you think about it, the amount of loyalty the two of them show each other. And in Sorcerer's Stone, when without a single complaint, they pack up and leave. And... Vernon, or Mr. Dursley, packs up and leave, Petunia does not question him at all. And the rest of the movie, you see that undying loyalty of a married couple, which is actually a very strong point. Sure, they are verbally and physically abusive of Harry, but they do have a very great relationship. And another scene they didn't include in the movies is when the Dursleys are leaving their house in the Deathly Hallows is Dudley actually looks back and asks, isn't he coming with us? Talking about Harry because he's just lived with Harry for so long and they eventually end up making up and saying goodbye in a very emotional way in the books, which they didn't show that in the Mm. movie, which was kind of sad. Yeah, I feel like that could have been a very powerful scene of reconciliation between those two, but they had to cut it for time's sake, I guess. They they had like a five-hour movie at that point that they cut into two movies, so I kind of understand it, but it could have been a nice quick little 30 second part of the movie which another thing is they only put this in the extended version which seth we won't just watch deathly hallows but petunia which one scene i really wish they would have put in the normal movie is she says to harry right before she leaves is she says you didn't only lose a mother that night you lost a sister which shows that she really did care about lily which is kind of sad because she treated her son in such a terrible way. It almost gives me a uh, reason to wonder what prompted their c- cruelty to him. Like, do you have an answer for that? Like, why were they so uh, rude I to do. him? Okay. I do. So in the books, it's shown that when Lily received her acceptance letter to Hogwarts, her parents were thrilled to have a witch in the family, which that's what Petunia says. And we see a tiny glimpse of this in Snape's memories, Petunia calling Lily a freak. 
But what we don't know is Petunia actually wrote to Dumbledore, Lily going to Hogwarts, and she asked if she could also go to Hogwarts, but she didn't possess the same magical abilities as Lily, which caused her to resent Harry. Seeing him having the same powers brought the same memories of her sister going away and having these special powers and her parents being thrilled with that instead of Petunia. And and it is understandable, the resentment almost of their parents towards Petunia about her not being magical in that sense. A very jealous type of anger. Yeah. yeah. Something that I realized as we were watching, and I think I told you this, is that the movies really grow up with their audience. I believe the first movie was released in 2001. The second part of Deathly Hallows was released in 2011. And so that's the same amount of time that we had with the MCU. So that the generation before me, who were teenagers in the 2000s, really grew up with anticipating the next movie the same way that I grew up anticipating the next Marvel movie. And I, it was during the intro when the, uh, when the words were coming closer to the screen, that is when I was like, this is really like, if I saw this in theaters and I had been waiting 10 years for this finale, I would be losing my mind. The same way that we reacted in Endgame when we watched that in theaters for the first time. Harry Potter was the last generation's big thing. And not only did it grow up with their audience, like as your audience grows up, you keep releasing movies and they love them, but they tonally grow up with their audience. So not only did obviously the actors grow up, and that's the point of following them through their life of growth and life, but the tone of the movie changes. It, the first movie was kind of very lighthearted because Harry and his friends were very young children. By the end, they're almost adults and there's just a weightiness to the movies that is so intense and riveting to watch. And there's a lot less jokes. There's just, everything's taken a lot more seriously. And it, it was cool to see that within, you know, watching them all from start to finish within probably a month of each other to, to see that growth happen so quickly. The first few movies are, yeah, very lighthearted. Well, second movie isn't very lighthearted. <laughs> but the last four movies, Order of the Phoenix, Half-Blood Prince, and Two Parts of Deathly Hallows are probably my four favorite. I really wouldn't watch the first three movies very much rewatch them i watched every movie four or five times but <laughs> the last four are the ones i can go back and rewatch and rewatch and rewatch and they're always good to me at least and it's the same thing with the books can go back and read them again and again and it's always good and it's arguably it saved reading for a lot of people because they were written at a time where people were kind of giving up on reading it was the age of technology was advancing social media was coming up but jk rowling wrote such amazing books that kids just read them and it was so easy to read and the stories were so in engulfing I'd say. Yeah, precisely. The the rewatchability of any movie, I've said this before, tells how good it is. If you can watch it again, get the same enjoyment out of it, watching it second, third, fourth time, then it's a really good movie. It's a well-told story if you can enjoy it that many times and not lose interest. Another sense of growing up that it did is accepting the visual effects of the times. As you may know, I have an animation degree that's been made known in the past. There is a lot of visual effects improvements that happened over the course of these 10 years. None of it really looks bad. I would say the worst was probably the big ogre early on, which looked a little... Uh, looked troll. Troll, I'm sorry. It looked a little stiff and a little pasty. Yeah. But they really improved along those 10 years, and especially the visual effects on Voldemort. It is very easy 
to add visual effects to something, to add a lower half to, say, Mr. Tumnus's body so he can have goat legs or something like that. It's relatively easy to do that. It's very difficult to remove something in the sense that Voldemort's nose is not there. It's very different than legs because legs are an extremity that you can just crop off and then add visual effects legs. The nose, because it moved with his face and everything that he did, especially like with the mouth, anytime you move, it flexes muscles up in your nose as well. So they had a lot of work to do on that and they nailed it. I would say they did pretty well. I think the first movie he was on the back of a head, so I don't know if that really works as well, but I don't really care. The last few movies, flawless. The way they were able to track a new nose or lack of nose, onto Voldemort and make him look as grotesque as, he, as they did. Very well done. And really the first movie, we have to put it in perspective, it came out 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. It's it's almost as old as you are. Thank you. Which, <laughs> which is funny because going back and watching it, yeah, it kind of has some of the VFX kind of have that PS3 vibe of <laughs> graphics, but having it come out 20 years ago, and being able to watch it and still having that believability is still really good. And yeah, the first movie, they were still kind of trying to get the feel of what everything was going to look like. But a majority of sets and everything was built. Like in the scene where they jump off the dragon in Deathly Hallows, they filmed that in a lake. They hmm. drop them in a lake and have them climb up onto a hill. Hmm. It's those things. And like in Goblet of Fire, they... I believe it is the it was the second largest aquatic filming center ever before avatar yeah so it's just one of those things that the vfx grows and still watching it 20 years after it came out it's still that believability is really good Mm -hmm. so i kind of want to talk about a couple of the deeper elements of these movies you know who that's another big thing that they didn't really put in the movie is harry and dumbledore are the only two people that use Voldemort's name. And when Harry does, all of his friends, J.K. Rowling put this in the movie, or in the books, is whenever he said it, she said the sentence after it, and Ron flinched, and Hermione as well. But Harry hadn't grown up with this fear of Voldemort. And his whole family and everybody called Voldemort you-know-who. But it's said in the books, Dumbledore was the only wizard Voldemort was afraid of because... Dumbledore taught Tom Riddle, or Voldemort, when he was growing up. And Dumbledore is the greatest wizard out there. So that's that's the other thing. As I said, fear of the name only increases fear of the thing itself, which and, is a big part of the books instead of the movies. And if you haven't listened to our episode on horror movies with Deacon, we bring this point up in how avoiding it completely gives it more power than it deserves. That's more of a general statement. For the movie specifically, avoiding Voldemort's name was giving him almost a level of respect that he didn't deserve because he was obviously the the evil one. He was the embodiment of evil for that franchise, for that world. So being fearful to say his name was not helping the situation at all. But Deacon's point in the horror movie episode was to call evil evil and to not be afraid of it because we have... A greater power inside of us, and that is that is Christ's power over death and over Satan. He has already declared victory, and we need to understand that we should not be scared of these spiritual demons who are very present. I believe that spiritual warfare is all around us, and avoiding it and pretending that it doesn't exist or just ignoring it is not going to help to actually acknowledge that it exists and to aid in that spiritual warfare by 
by praying against it and praying for the angels to to fight off these these evil spirits that are wanting to take control of the world is going to do so much more than pretending that it doesn't exist. And that's evident in this movie because as soon as they start saying Voldemort's name, they have this, not authority, but strength to almost fight him and realizing that they have nothing to be afraid of. Well, and another thing in the books that they didn't have in the movies is during the time they were searching for the Horcruxes is Voldemort put a jinx almost on his name because he knew the only people that were going to use it were the people of the Order of the Phoenix and Harry, Ron, and Hermione. And that's how they get caught in the books. After Ron tells them this, Harry accidentally later uses Voldemort's name and the Snatchers show up and take them away. And that's how they're caught in the books. But in the movies, they just happen upon some Snatchers in the middle of the woods. So the next thing I want to talk about is the love between Snape and Lily. That was a total surprise to me. I don't know if that was hinted at and I just missed it, but that that reveal was like, whoa. Well, so the funny thing is, everybody tells Harry how he looks like his father, but has his mother's eyes. And we catch a glimpse of this in the last movie, in Snape's Memories. He's been single his entire life, but he is the same age as James and Lily. But he is portrayed as much older, which is kind of a play on that he's been engulfed in this dark magic and sadness for so long that he seems to be much older than he actually is, is because he's technically in his late 30s. Hmm. So, and that's the thing that they didn't really put in the movies, but he had this deep love for Lily, but this resentment for James, since James bullied him so much. But that's why he resented Harry so much, is because he looked exactly like his father. But when Snape is dying, do you remember what his last words are? You have her eyes. Yep, you have your mother's eyes, which shows that he still loved Lily and saw that in Harry and finally kind of came to grips with that before he died, which then Harry goes to name his son after Snape, which is pretty cool. And then the last thing, which I think is, well, actually two more things. One thing, and I think it's one of the most underrated lines, which is not in the movies, but it's in the books, is when Hagrid is taking Harry into Gringotts Bank for the first time, there's this poem, which is very profound. And it is, enter stranger, but take heed of what awaits the sin of greed. For those who take, but do not earn, must pay most dearly in their turn. So if you seek beneath our floors a treasure that was never yours, thief you have been warned, beware of finding more than treasure there. Which encapsulates a lot of Bible verses, Hmm. honestly. The first is, enter stranger, but take heed of what awaits the sin of greed. For those who take, but do not earn, must pay most dearly in their turn. That encapsulates the verse of being lazy and not working for what you take and being greedy. And I think it's just very good of her taking Bible verses and kind of writing this poem. Mm -hmm. They're, They're a little sneaky, but when you start looking for them, they're there. And they're evident. Well, and that's the thing. J.K. Rowling said it. She was like, I didn't want to tell people that these were verses from the Bible because that could turn some people off. But she wanted people to know eventually that that's where some of these lines come from. And that's why they're so profound is because they really are just Bible verses. And that's why a lot of people like them so much. I would say it also hurt her PR a little bit because of this antagonistic view from the Christian culture that was like, like we talked about, oh, magic, let's not watch or read those. But her silence on saying, oh, hey, guys, I'm adding Bible verses. This isn't 
as bad as you think, that she also didn't want to spoil the ending. Withholding that information, saying, hey guys, I'm putting Bible verses in my books because they're not just about magic, they're actually about a bigger story. It would maybe draw some bridges and connections between what she ultimately wanted to get to by the end of the books. And then the last thing I want to talk about is the amount of sacrifice in these movies is profound. The first one we see is in Harry's mother. She dies for him because when Voldemort goes to their house and he kills James and then he goes up and he's going to kill Harry because of a prophecy, Lily throws herself in front of Voldemort and says, kill me, take me instead, just don't kill my son. So what happens there is there's a deep ancient magic that Voldemort didn't know about. So when he kills Lily and then tries to kill Harry, the curse rebounds on him because she sacrificed her life to save Harry, which is a big thing up until the last movie. That's pretty profound. And then a couple others is, as we talked about, Dobby. He sacrifices himself to get Harry and his friends out of Malfoy Manor, but eventually dies because Bellatrix threw a knife into his chest. And then finally, of course, what we talked about is Harry ending up sacrificing his, his life to save all of his friends when he realizes that's what he does. And I think that's the moment where the coming of age kind of stops and ends because it shows his maturity and his willingness to step up and say, there's nothing more I can do. I have to sacrifice my life. And he was willing to die for his friends in order that they would have a better life. And of course, Dumbledore as well. And Half-Blood Prince and, and Snape as well, because he kills Dumbledore instead of having Draco do it because they know the emotional ramifications of that. Well, thank you, Luke, so much for talking about this topic. I know it is a very touchy, and I hope that we can continue to change the narrative of it and at least open some minds. If you, listener, have been thinking about this and want to discuss it further, our Discord is a great place to do that. We also have Instagram, YouTube, TikTok, Facebook, whatever you want to follow us. We got video episodes on YouTube, short-form content on all the others. If you want to follow us there, share this with your friends, give us a five-star rating, thumbs up, follow, whatever you want. Anything helps. We've loved the support from everyone who listens and keep it up guys we love making these for you so thank you for listening and supporting all that to say hope you guys have a great day we love you all peace out bye